Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. With me is my co-host, Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach and Marketing for the Naval Institute. Ward, welcome back. It's great to be back. I had a couple of days of vacation down in, uh, in Florida. It was actually colder down there than it was up here. On the phone with us today from Alexandria, Virginia, is retired Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson, who was a surface warfare officer, uh, Naval Academy graduate, class of 1970, uh, served uh, for 34 years on active duty before uh, leaving the Navy after commanding uh, 7th Fleet and 2nd Fleet, and he became the CEO of Naval Federal Credit Union. So, uh, Admiral Dawson, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Bill Ward, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So, sir, you've written a book called From the Sea to the C-Suite, uh, published by the Naval Institute Press. It's uh, one of the, the newest books out from the Naval Institute Press. Uh, it is a, it's a great little book, uh, Leadership Lessons from Your Time at Sea, and also how you applied those lessons uh, in your time as the CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union. So um, how this, how this book come to be? Over the 14 years that I was at Navy Federal, um, I would tell sea stories to my employees uh, or parables uh, or what I call pictures uh, to explain what my thinking was. Um, and over time, I, I found out that they enjoyed hearing the sea stories. It gave them a picture of what I was talking about, and it worked for me, and it worked for them, too. So as I ended my time uh, at Navy Federal, my wife, Debbie, encouraged me to said, hey, you ought to write a book and um, capture the lessons from your sea stories and how it helped you in your work at Navy Federal. So let's start at the beginning. Talk to us about your formative years and uh, how that shaped what was to come after that. I had two terrific parents, uh, both of whom had been in the Navy during World War II, um, and they always thought it would be a good idea that my brother Craig and I go to the Naval Academy, and we both did. And so I would say that the Naval Academy um, got me off to the foundation um, uh, that I enjoy today. Uh, and I mentioned it in my book, uh, one of the things that they, they taught us, and I believe they still do at the Naval Academy, uh, is that there are four acceptable answers to any question posed to you. Uh, and we all know that those are the four answers are yes, sir, no, sir, I'll find out, sir, and no excuse, sir. And um, that was kind of my bedrock uh, in both careers. And uh, I can tell you, it, it served me pretty well. Sir, I, I've been a Navy Federal Credit Union member since the summer of 1983, my plebe year, and I opened an account in the the, uh, the branch office at the in the basement of Bancroft Hall. But I did not know until I read your book that Navy Federal is the largest credit union in the world. Oh, it is by far, by uh, um, uh, by about two and a half times the size of the next credit union. And, um, you know, the, the origins of Navy Federal's growth began when members of Congress back in the 50s asked Navy Federal if they would serve uh, service people overseas. Uh, they had been victimized by European payday lenders and uh, the congressional folks in the know wanted people over there that they could trust with service people. And what Navy Federal found when they opened up branches um, overseas, um, people used them. And then they used them when they returned. 
uh, and it was a model that has stood Navy Federal in great stead, and it's really the reason that it grew to the size that it is today. So what do you remember most about your time at the Naval Academy? <laughs> I, I remember the fun things that I did. I was on the tennis team, uh, and I remember uh, we had an officer rep of the tennis team, Commander Jim Organ. Um, and he would go on all our tennis trips with us. And he had been a diesel submariner and had command of the USS Albacore. And he taught us lessons. He told us stories about his career. And that really got me excited about being in the Navy. And uh, I, I guess you might say he was my first mentor. Uh, but I said, I want to be like Commander Organ someday. Uh, and it it uh, it it was a baseline for me that I'll never forget, and uh, uh, you know it was hard at times, um, uh, but uh, and I wasn't the greatest academic standout, uh, but uh, I enjoyed my time there, and uh, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. So you selected surface warfare. You mentioned in the book that your first CO, your first boss wasn't exactly uh, what you would have hoped. Talk to us about what you learned from working for a less than ideal boss. Actually, it was the second ship that I was on that uh, I ran into a difficult boss. And the first lesson I learned, um, I was a department head then, was that all the, the young junior officers that this was their first captain and first ship thought life was always like this. And um, it, their morale was not very high. And I, keep, I kept telling them to hang on. It's not like this all the time. And we'll get through this. And there'll be a new captain someday. And trust me, uh, you will like him much better. Later on, you you transitioned for, after that uh, after that tour. You went uh, and this is this comes through a lot in this book is the idea of being the the captain of your own ship uh, and, and and taking charge of your own destiny. So as a lieutenant, you went on to command uh, the USS Malala, an ocean going tug, which doesn't sound sexy, but it there was a lot of interesting lessons for you in that having command at an early time in your career. Oh, there there was and. Um... You know, I mentioned that when I told uh, the other JOs that there there would be a new captain that would come aboard. Well, that captain was a, a fellow named Captain Pete Headley, and he was the one that just turned that ship around, and he was the one that recommended that I go to the fleet tug, and it wouldn't have happened without him. And I think all of us in our careers can remember people that have helped us along the way. Uh, and in return... Um, I've hoped that I've helped some people along the way. Uh, but he was the one that got me off to the ocean going tug. Uh, and it was a hoot. Uh, I had five years in the Navy at the time. Um, I thought I could do just about anything. Uh, and um, I had a great crew, great support, and, and we did. And, uh, you know, I'm going to puff a little bit and say, I'll be daggone if that USS Malala didn't win the Marjorie Sterrett Battleship Award, its fifth consecutive E, and the NAE Award for Outstanding Food Service during my tour. Uh, 
I mean, there is nothing better than being sent to a ship that is number one. And I was very fortunate. That's one of the elements of surface warfare that maybe midshipmen don't think about when it comes time for service selection is you can get command at a very young age. Well, that's actually why I went surface warfare. Um, not only can you get command at an early age, but, you know, I thought about going aviation. And then I thought about, wow, you know, I'll be in a long pipeline before I get to fly. But if I go surface, um, I can lead people right away. I can have my own division uh, and I can see if I'm up to the task. And um, uh, that's what led me to surface warfare. And yes, and I would advise anyone that's, um, that's coming up now like, like I was, go to command as soon as you can. Um, there's a friend of mine who passed away a number of years ago named Mick McDonough who used to say, uh, your worst day in command is better than any other day in the Navy. During that time, you were on board Malala, commanding Malala, uh, and you talk about the, um, uh, the acronym that we use in the Navy a lot. Some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with it. Others will be familiar with it. Uh, it's either pronounced UNODIR or UNODIR, so unless otherwise directed is, is what that stands for. Uh, tell a little bit about that, um, that saying in the Navy, what it means in the Navy, and then how it also applied when you left the Navy and went into business and went to the Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, you know, you know, dear, is near and dear to my heart. Um, I think, um, as, as you know, the origins of Unidir was when ships used to operate at uh, great distance with no communications, and it may take days and weeks uh, to get acknowledgement of uh, requests or or reports, um, and uh, the commanders then would take action, and or before they took action, they would they would send uh, information to their superiors and say, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do this. And in most cases, before they even received the message at headquarters, the action had already been carried out. Um, Some things just don't wait. And um, I think it was part of the greatness of the United States Navy. Uh, It was was everything that we wanted it to be. Uh, And I tried to to live up to that, um, but... As the speed of communications improved, you can get hold of people much quicker. But I will tell you, um, as a captain of a ship, um, uh, as the CEO of Navy Federal, I really admired it when people that work for me and with me took initiative. I don't think we should ever lose that. There's a cameo by uh, Admiral Morrison. Um, which I enjoyed being a frustrated rock and roller. Um, you've already mentioned uh, Captain Headley. Talk to us about why he got an audience with uh, with Admiral Morrison. Well, I was the weapons officer on the uh, Albert David, and uh, Captain Pete Headley was our captain. And um, uh, we were deployed, and we were out to sea a lot. And... Captain Headley was one of those captains that was always looking for ways to improve morale on his ship. Um, 
And one of the things he thought about when we were in Apra Harbor in Guam was, well, we'll go water skiing behind the captain's gig. And it's a way to unwind on a Sunday while we're in port. Um, well, he got called to task uh, on that because um, it wasn't, uh, there was a issue on fuel, but he essentially said, um, we're going to do this anyway. So Captain Henley gets called over to see the Admiral about why he's water skiing in Apple Harbor. He sweated it. He, he knew that uh, he had some explaining to do. Um, what he didn't know was he was faced with an Admiral that um, knew what it was like to spend long days at sea, and he knew what it was like to have great morale. And he just kind of smiled at uh, Captain Headley and said, uh, next time you do that, I want to come with you. Um, and uh, we, of course, on the ship just thought Captain Headley uh, was the greatest thing we'd ever seen, that he cared about us, uh, that he tried to do good things for us, and he wasn't afraid to do so. Um, and I think all of us should try to leave our, lead our lives like Pete Headley. So Aaron Morrison is the father of Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, um, who we all know met an untimely death at the age of 27, but uh, he's a rock and roll legend. Admiral, wasn't he the youngest admiral at the time? I don't know if he, uh, um, I think Admiral Johnson was ultimately the youngest. I think ever. so too. Uh, he was probably a, um, a Zumwalt era admiral where Zumwalt reached down way low to pick up people that he knew were going to be good leaders. And I believe Admiral Morrison was one of those people. Yeah, that's one of those uh, trivial pursuit things. You know, the famous military brats, Jim Morrison is right up there with uh, on that list. So that's uh, pretty amazing that uh, he came into um, your circle there. Fortunate that he was there. Um, and um, uh, we all left port with smiles on our face. So as I read the book, a couple of things jumped out at me. One was the, uh, the the constant theme in here of taking care of your people, right? This idea that you take care of your people and their morale is going to be high and they're going to take care of your customers if you're at NFCU or they're going to take care of the mission if they're out on a ship, if they're in the Navy. Um, you, you, you have in here a couple of vignettes that get to this idea of you know, always seek the truth, always ask people to tell you the truth, expect them to tell you the truth. But then if they tell you the truth and the truth isn't, isn't, you know, great news, if, if it isn't the, the, you know, the bright, shiny, happy news you wanted to hear, don't, don't kill them for it, right? Don't kill the messenger. There's a story that you share of being the CEO of the USS Princeton, doing some missile testing off the coast of California. And this uh, $250,000 target comes out at the ship and you're supposed to shoot it down. You're, you're waiting for missiles away, and nothing happens. Uh, tell that story a little bit. That occurred on the Princeton uh, um, right after Princeton had been repaired after its mine damage uh, during the Gulf, uh, Gulf War. Um, and um, it was a very critical time to prove that this ship that almost sunk would be uh, battle-worthy again. So we were all keen to prove that we were back, and we were back better than ever. Um, so when that first target went over and essentially nothing happened, 
I think it shook everybody on the crew to their foundation. Um, so I decided that, you know, well, let's get to the bottom of this. And uh, I remember walking to the wardroom uh, to have the meeting to find out what happened. I go, ooh, um, they're going to be watching me closely when I walk in. If I'm a crazy person, they're all going to go to pieces. And th- that's not my style anyway. So I just walked in and in a very calm manner just said, hey, we got to figure out what happened here so we can get after these other targets. And um, I will give that third-class petty officer huge credit to the end of my days for for raising his hand and saying, Captain, I made a mistake. I had my switch in the wrong position. And I think he probably would have done that whether I had been uh, calm and cool like I think I was or I had been uh, a crazy man, but maybe not. Um, and then it was important that um, we just get on with the business and we, we, we shot the other three targets down with no problem. Um, there were absolutely no consequences to that third-class petty officer. Uh, at the end of the exercise, I thanked everybody, including him, for the good work they'd done that day. Um, and it's a lesson that I like to tell to other people because uh, people make mistakes from time to time. Uh, I've certainly made plenty of them, um, but they should not be fatal, uh, particularly when they're not done with malice. Uh, and um, uh, we don't live in a zero-risk environment, and we don't live in a zero-mistake-free zone. Um, and it's something all of us need to keep in mind. So I'm curious, with that ship having uh, hit the mine during uh, Desert, uh, Desert Storm, and then you took command after that, what percentage of the crew on board at that time of that, uh, that missile X uh, had been on board when the, when the ship hit the mine? Uh, there had been turnover uh, <clears throat> because um, many of the crew members were plank owners, and they actually transferred after the, after the return from the deployment. I would say probably 25% of the crew had been there when the missile strike uh, had occurred on them and, and probably had a 50 to 75% turnover after that. I'm curious one of the things that, that interests me a lot and I like to read about is uh, history of financial meltdowns, right? And the, the Great Recession. So this, you, you took command of, uh, of Navy Federal Credit Union in 2004. In 2009 was the start, uh, you know, 2008, 2009 was the financial meltdown, Wall Street, the home loan crisis, um, all of that happened. And, and, you know, Navy Federal Credit Union is in the middle of that. It's It's a bank. It's a mortgage lender. It's all those things. And yet, you came out of that, the company came out of that uh, growing rather than folding, right? I mean, so there was Wells Fargo and Bank of America and, I mean, Lehman Brothers, you name it. There were lots of big-name banks and financial institutions that really folded or or came out much diminished after, you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, so how did... Did you have moments like on the Princeton where something started to go wrong and you went, okay, let's huddle up, tell me the truth, what's going on here, and then how do we, how do we make it so that our next three or four decisions, our next three or four you know, engagements are successful rather than you know, going the direction that other banks were going? Well, you know, that's exactly what we did. We didn't know when the bottom was going to occur. We didn't know uh, how deep... Uh, the crisis was going to go. Uh, 
those were some things we didn't know. But what, what we did know was the loans that we had made at Navy Federal um, previous to the recession uh, had been done for the right reasons. For example, when, when we made a mortgage loan to put someone in a house, we always were very careful that we made the loan for the right reason. In other words, we wanted to, someone to buy a home, but we wanted to, them to buy a home and have a mortgage that they could afford. So we used to call it the right loan for the right reason. And it was a way to protect um, the member's money at Navy Federal, but it was also a way to protect that member that was taking a loan. In other words, we weren't giving him a loan, a far greater amount of loan than he could, he or she could could handle, particularly if there was a, a, a crisis or a snafu, a personal crisis or an economic crisis. So we had a pretty good confidence that that we were going to do okay. Um, and I remember one decision that we made um, that was far different than the banks and many others. Um, a lot of the banks cut back on people's credit card credit lines during the crisis. In other words, if you had a credit card that was um, uh, which you had a twenty thousand uh, dollar limit. They reduced it to five or ten thousand. We had a meeting, just like the meeting in the wardroom uh, for the missile shoot one day, and we said, "What are we going to do about this?" And we decided we're not going to do anything. Um, they depend on that limit. They depend on that. We have made that promise to them. We're not going to change it. Well, what we didn't know was when recession ended, uh, how much goodwill that brought us from the membership, um, that we had stood by them in the crisis um, when other banks weren't doing that. Um, so we we had multiple things like that that would come up, uh, and we would sit down and we'd evaluate it, and we would, we would essentially say, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do by the membership and what's the right thing to do by the member? Uh, and that stood us very well. There's one chapter titled Listen Like a Sonar Tech. What does that mean? <laughs> um, you, find, you find out the most things when you're listening. When you're talking, you don't discover many things. So I, I firmly believe that if, if you want to have a good picture of what's going on, you want to have a good situational awareness. You have to listen to the people and the environment that's around you. Um, and then that helps develop a picture of what's happening around you. Um, but if you're just talking and barking out orders and, and pontificating, you don't learn so much. Uh, but I will tell you that, um, there's a uh, there's a natural tendency for all of us to the longer that we've been in a position, the more tendency we have that we want to talk more, and we do that because we want to teach people, um, and we do that also because we think we have learned the answers. Uh, 
So you continually have to strike a balance between, as a leader, on how much you talk to instruct and how much you just pause and wait and listen. Um, and um, I know I'm, um, I'm guilty sometimes of talking too much, uh, but I often stop myself and go, let's listen and let's learn. So in the case of a, a ship like the Princeton, what, what were the mechanisms that you would use to, to listen? Would you go down to the cheese mess, go down to the engineering spaces? I mean, uh, how, how, whose voice did you want to hear, and, and how would you make sure you were in touch with those voices? Over the course of time, I've developed a theory about being in command of a ship or anything, and it's, it's called, you better be careful that you don't retreat to the cabin. So the longer that you're uh, in a position, the longer you're in command, the more you have a tendency to say, I've been down to the Ford engine room. I know what it's like down there. I don't need to go down there again. I can just stay in my cabin and work on paperwork or think great thoughts. Don't do that. You got to get out and about and constantly listen and see what's going on around you. Um, and you have to do it for a couple reasons. Uh, one, people change. You may have new people up in that engine room. Two, uh, you may have um, new conditions up there, new equipment, and you may be in a new environment. So you have to continue. I, and I do remember when I was on the Princeton, um, I was down crawling around underneath number three generator one day. And I go, I remember thinking, dang, I might be getting too old for this. This is hard work uh, down here. Uh, it's much cooler up in my cabin. Uh, and then the good parrot on my right shoulder said, this is where you're supposed to be. Um, and then you're out, you're listening, but most importantly, your people see that you care about what they're doing. So at the end of your book, you have a, a page called Navy Federal by the Numbers. And I'm just, this is going to lead to a question, but between 2004 and 2019, NFCU's assets quadrupled from $22 billion to $100 billion. Its membership tripled from 2.5 million to 8 million, and it more than tripled the number of branches around the world from 106 to 335. So, how much time when you were the CEO did you spend on the road out visiting your operations centers and your your local branches, so that you were doing that same, you know, getting out of, off the bridge, getting out of your cabin, walking down to the you know, the number two engine room or up to sonar or wherever, but in NFCU terms, you're out in the branches, you're out in your op centers. How much time do you spend on the road? I spent a lot of time on the road. I was visiting branches or I was in the call center all the time. But when I was there, I learned what our employees were doing. I was learning what they were faced with. But I was also talking to the members of the credit union and I was able to ask them, what do you need? How are we supporting you? What could we do better? And there's nothing like hearing it um, right from the source. Now, you've got, you've got to evaluate it. You've got to measure it. You've got to, uh, you've got to consider it. But there's nothing like direct input. Um, and, but I'll also tell you, uh, it's no different than being on a ship. When you're talking to that young sailor, or you're talking to that young employee, 
It gives you a job satisfaction and an enjoyment that you just can't measure. Every time I want to feel good, I would visit a branch. It's like the old story that uh, about the swoe that went to heaven in his rumpled khakis. And um, St. Peter let him in and the other people, and they couldn't get in. But this rumpled swoe went in. And um, all of them got upset and said to St. Peter, why, why are you letting that rumpled up surface warfare officer walk right into heaven? And St. Peter looked at him and smiled and said, well, no, no, that's not a surface warfare officer. That's God. He just dresses up like one when he wants to feel good. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> okay, that's a great story. She <laughs> <laughs> uh, can make him an aviator, too. Okay, but, I'm going to use that. Uh, I'm going to use like that, except for being an aviator. Uh, anyway, so it... Um, and then one of my last official acts was to open a new branch in Coronado, California, which the board of directors had decreed would be named the Debbie Dawson branch in Coronado. You talk about feeling good, uh, because often on the branch visits, my wife would go with me. She would go off and do her thing in the branch while I was doing mine, and we learned twice as much that way. Uh, now, that was a lot of fun. So I know... Making a career transition is, is tough, especially, you know, all three of us I think, in the conversation here uh, very much loved uh, being in uniform for the decades we were. What were your challenges as you took over as, as CEO um, in terms of things you didn't expect? And then what did you find out you were leveraging from your military experience that maybe you didn't think would be relevant? I thought about all that before I went to my first day at work. And and um, I said, there's a lot about banking I don't know. I've got a lot to learn. So i got to do a lot of listening and ask a lot of questions. But mo the most important thing um, in my transition that, that, that I thought about was I have to prove to the employees at Navy Federal that I care about them and that I want to learn from them because they're, they don't know what to expect. Uh, this retired admiral who's never, um, uh, been a, uh, a full-time employee of Navy Federal is now their leader and they might be nervous about it a little bit. So I got to go out and meet them and I got to go. And I spent a lot of time early on just going, I would go at headquarters and go and sit by someone's desk and I'd say, Hi, I'm Cutler. Tell me what you do and tell me what you think I can do to help you do your job better. I didn't realize how electric that was um, uh, for a while. Um, it, it's just like someone saying the captain was down and after steering uh, or um, the CEO was actually monitoring phone calls in the call center. Uh, to see what our life is like. You just can't replace that. I think the other thing that causes some anxiety as we leave a career with great purpose, great sense of mission, is that we would get into a career that didn't have that. And in the book, you talk about some customer testimonials that, that motivated you. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and the value of having a job like with NFCU where you actually do serve people in a very meaningful, important way. Oh, I think it's critical. Um, <clears throat> I I think there are three elements um, 
that make for a successful second career uh, or any career. And, and those are, um, one, are you, are you proud of the work that you're doing in the organization that you serve in? And two, do you feel valued for the work that you're doing in that organization, not only by your bosses and peers, but the people that, um, that you, that work for you? And the third thing, um, of course, is do you feel like you're adequately compensated for the work and the effort that you're put in? And if you can have all three of those, um, you're in a great place. But um, I think it starts with, and I was very fortunate about Navy Federal. I believed in their mission. <clears throat> I believed in what they did. And um, and I still do. Uh, I mean, I've, even more so. Um, they try to help people. They try to do the right thing. And they try to make people's lives better. Um, and if you're in a position where um, you're you're just um, trying to make a buck uh, at the expense of someone else, you might be in the wrong place. Um, and um, I think most of us coming out of the service feel that way. The book is called From the Sea to the C-Suite by Cutler Dawson with Taylor Baldwin-Killand. Lessons learned from the bridge to the That's corner Keeland, office. Keeland. Keeland, sorry. Our good friend Taylor Keeland. Taylor she Keeland. She would be so mad if we screw up her last name. Thank you, Ward. But let me tell you a quick story about Taylor Keeland. I told sea stories, and she weaved them into these wonderful chapters. I can't say enough good things about her. I will tell you, and this will bring a smile to your face, uh, I hope, um, I told her, I said, Taylor, there's only one way we're going to write this book. And I said, that's if your name is on the book. She's written about 18 other books, ghostwritten books. And she said, well, no one's ever asked me for that before. And I said, no, um, your name's going on the book because I wouldn't feel right uh, with you doing all the work. And we both need to get the credit. And um, so there she is. But she is tremendous. Taylor Keelan. And she's also a member of the Navy family. She's a Navy PAO. Um, so she is, uh, and I served with her dad uh, back in the 70s. We were on the same Group 3 staff uh, together. Fantastic. And that's how it all comes full circle. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, sir, it, it's a great book. It's an easy, quick read, 130 pages or so for our listeners who are looking for Christmas gifts, holiday gifts. Uh, it's a great one for junior officers. It's a great one for you know, young petty officers and chiefs. It's a great one for uh, if you've got a, a member of your family who's getting ready to transition from the Navy or from somewhere in the military. Or anybody, if you're getting your MBA, they, it's really relevant. They, yeah, these stories it, and these Leadership, examples, lessons, business. It's not just it's, military. Yeah. It's corporate. It's, yeah. uh, and uh, the Admiral does a nice job of weaving these stories in and out and sort of a uh, very free surface effect working between these worlds uh, in an imminently readable way. Yeah, so and it, it, it's, it's a perfect size to make as a stocking stuffer. It's stuff a stocking well. stuffer. It is. Yes. It's a stocking stuffer. So yeah. I'd like to say it's a little book with big print. And uh, <laughs> I, I wrote it for my aviator friend. Right. So, uh, Especially your NFO aviator friends. Very nice. <laughs> Bad vision. Yeah. All right, so well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, for our listeners, our next guest will be this Thursday, Major Brian Kirk, U.S. Marine Corps, whose article is in the uh, November issue of Proceedings, and it won the 2019 Naval Institute Marine Corps Essay Contest. So that should be a great tactical conversation. So, Admiral, are we going to see you at the Army-Navy game? 
you know, this is the first one in 20 years we're going to miss. We're, we're going to be in Coronado. Uh, now that I'm retired, we're spending, we have a home out there that we bought 33 years ago. Wow. And, uh, when, when you can move. afford it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we're going to, we're going to watch it on TV. I'm probably going to be, um, I can walk to a couple of the uh, nice establishments on Orange uh, Avenue, and uh, we'll watch it on TV. Are you going to be there? Yes. So my, you may know my class does the Chain Gang. So since we are the home team this year, I will be holding the down box on the home sideline. Um, I will be so looking for you. Look for me. That's yeah. Great. So if I'm standing near the coach or the play smashes into me, that's how I get TV time. That's that's Woods. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll be, there. We'll be thinking about you and your warm bungalow in Coronado or some establishment while we're freezing there on the sidelines. So nice. it's a lot less cold, uh, cold if we're winning, though. That's so, true. Um, that is true. Although we're neutral, right? We're just an extension of the referees. So um, I know, but we're, you we're, can we're neutral. Why are you doing it? We're no, neutral in parentheses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, you guys both made this very easy, and I appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for the time, sir. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll catch you again on Thursday this week. Until then, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Have a great week.